Today's episode of the Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Calshi. We've talked about a few key events on this show recently, notably the debt ceiling negotiation going on right now. And we've come across a platform that allows you to trade directly on its outcome. Calshi is a federally regulated exchange backed by Sequoia Capital, Y Combinator, Charles Schwab, and other top investors that have invented a new asset class, event contracts. Event contracts allow investors to take yes or no positions on events such as whether the U.S. will default on its debt obligations, whether the Fed will hike rates in June, what Biden's approval rating will be next month, and much more. Calshi's event contracts allow you a chance to profit from being right about where the world is heading in targeted ways and is offering Real Vision listeners $15 when they sign up using the link calshi.com slash realvision right now. Again, that's calshi.com slash realvision to claim your $15 credit now. Has the equity market rally run its course? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Jim Carson, founder of Kai Volatility. Hey there. How are you? Hey, how are you? Good to be back. I'm doing, I'm doing well, thanks. So we're still waiting on the final deal on the debt ceiling, but how are you thinking about the markets as we sort of work our way through this final stage? Oh, wow. That's a big question. There's a lot of moving parts here. I think uh, first... And foremost, we'd be remiss if we didn't start with kind of the biggest story, which is kind of breadth, right? And the lack thereof. Um, NVIDIA is at the tip of the spear on that um, and all the AI kind of um, excitement, um, exuberance, right? Uh, the, the reality is I think very few people understand why breadth is important. Um, it has a direct connection to volatility. Um, uh, everybody thinks indexes are a constituent of the, its parts because that's what we've all been taught, right? And index indexing itself takes the single stocks, adds them together, and it equals the index. But in today's day and age, um, the reality is that the index is just as powerful, if not more, than the parts because that is where the majority of the, the directional trading takes place um, and the hedging takes place. Um, and the index vol is very well supplied and very compressed. Um, and when that's the case, but you have fundamental pressures um, uh, on liquidity, as we're seeing, as interest rates have gone to 5% and uh, we can get into the TGA uh, kind of refilling and all the concerns there. But as that starts to happen, stocks that are not vol centers, that are not compressed, you know, take on the liquidity of the of the primary um, source, which is, you know, the Fed and, and all the other uh, primary liquidity, fundamental liquidity sources. Um, and if those start to uh, decrease, right, if those stocks start to decrease and the index vol is pinned, that means whatever is not pinned, which is the short vol center, um, has to go the other way to balance it. Just mathematically speaking, it has to happen. Um, so the vol is very compressed. Indexes are pinned. We're at uh, over one-year lows kind of in realized vol. Uh, implied vol has followed suit. Um, and uh, and guess what? Uh, 90, only 10, 10 stocks represent uh, 97%, right, um, of the increase in the market. And so something has to, you know, as all the other stocks are declining, something has to counterbalance that. And that is not surprisingly the short vol center, which is all those calls being bought in NVIDIA. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Eight days ago, we had record levels of call buying uh, in those names. That speculation is forcing dealer short vol in that complex. And this is a simple dispersion trade at its finest, right? And this is market microstructure at work. Um, this, this is why breadth matters. It gives you when the index is not moving, but the majority of the stocks start going down. That tells you something about the reality, the fundamental realities of liquidity versus what might be happening just structurally under the hood. And when you start to see divergences, not just like that, but in other parts of the market, that's a clue that this is a flows, flows-based phenomenon and not a fundamental phenomenon. When those divergences happen, that happen, that's generally a very, very good clue to what might be coming. Yeah. So we'll start there. Jim, yeah. Do you think, and there's a lot in there, and I know a lot of people are listening to this and totally getting it. Some of our viewers may not, who don't sort of look under the hood like you do. So we're, we'll try to pull it apart a little bit. Do you think that, um, that, that this is the, the liquidity issues are kind of permanently driving now? Is this just sort of a moment in time or has the sort of functioning now become more about that and less about what you call the fundamentals, which I presume are the kinds of things that we used to look at when we look at stocks? Um, it, it hasn't been about fundamentals for decades. Mm -hmm. um, uh, now, uh, we can... Again, that's that's the narrative you hear on CNBC, right? Yeah, uh, you know, and that's, that's really what 98% that of that. RIAs will tell their clients yeah. because the truth is too complicated for your average person to really look at or care about. It's not the narrative that is uh, that, that most people have been told. Um, I've given the analogy, I think on here even, about the airplane, right? I'm not going to redo it, but the reality is that that liquidity is what drives direction. Uh, valuation is is the elevation ha the, off the ground, right? Um, and, and the reality is... Uh, you can be way off the ground, but if the liquidity is still firing, the you know the the, the plane will still continue to rise in, in a steady, solid fashion for years. Um, a, a stock market is, a, is at, at the end of the day, factually, a, a matter of buyers and sellers, and it's a function of supply and demand. And liquidity goes straight to demand, right? And and that is what matters. Supply and demand is what matters in the market. Fundamentals will matter at some point as a function. You know they will affect supply and demand, but how do they do that? generally as a function of cash flow. They are a put on a business. Um, and what do I mean by a put on the business? If there is no liquidity, at some point when liquidity becomes gets removed from the system, all that ultimately matters is can a stock itself provide the liquidity it needs to stay in business? And, and that's the context under which uh, fundamentals matter uh, to the extent fundamentals affect demand for stocks. But we go often, not just years, but often a decade without, um, and, and we have gone uh, at least that, more than that, since 2009 at least, uh, where all that's mattered is, is you know, not earnings, but liquidity. And when that's the case, um, stonks go up, <laughs> you know, uh, you know uh, to use a Wall Street uh, bets phrase, right? Like that's the reality. It's all that matters is, is, uh, is their demand. Now, that's starting to change, right? And when that happens, uh, you know, the engines go off. If they start sputtering and there's no more gasoline in the tank, then guess what? The elevation off the ground does matter, right? And and uh, and particularly on a stock by stock basis. Now this is when kind of value growth rotations and all kinds of things start to happen because that put all of a sudden becomes a lot more important. That's a great great way to put it um, because I think that it's very different, as you say, when you listen to so many people who still talk about it in terms of those sort of earnings and their sales and their, you know, like the, the types of things that used to, used to really count. 
Um, that's a that's a really good way to to look at it. So, what when this is happening now? How does the whole that whole AI narrative fit in? Do you just think that's sort of like a red herring um, right now, or is it? It does it matter at the margin in the same way? Those does that fit into that sort of fundamentals that matter, but they're not driving necessarily until you see things evaporate? Because everyone was like, AI is going to change our life. That's why Nvidia is going to to new highs. You know. Uh Look, the, the big, much bigger than NVIDIA is, is the market and the S&P 500. And if the S&P 500 vol is pinned and structurally uh, you have a buying and selling force that is, is keeping realized vol temporarily or for however long it may, 2017, it lasted a year and a year and a half um, at, at bay. Um, and fundamentally certain stocks are decaying based on the lack of liquidity for them, right? Uh, and, and the fundamental pressures that they're facing. That means for one or two or three stocks, that's a massive amount of counter, you know, 490 of 500 stocks are uh, are going down or, or, or you know, static. Um, that means there has to be a pressure, right? Um, on the other side, and that, that pressure, think about how much that is, 10 stocks, right, are getting, uh, are having to counterbalance 490. Um, you know, so that is a tremendous amount of buy pressure and, and it is exacerbated by leverage, right, in a short vol center. This is what call squeezes kind of are about, right? This is a meme stock uh, or, you know, on the other side, we, we saw it with the, with the bank stocks recently. But once gamma gets involved, there's a tremendous amount of leverage. Uh, short gamma itself can be incredibly powerful. And when it has a tailwind in the force of structural flows to counterbalance, What's happening in the other part of the market it could be incredibly powerful. So my view is that uh, yes, uh, the call buying, the speculation in those names is driving, uh, you know, is loosening the liquidity and increasing leverage into a system that already has massive flows and you know is trying to find a home to to uh, you know to push certain assets in a certain direction, and that's like the weakest point. Right. Um, and so that's where we're seeing kind of this get going and momentum begets momentum, begets more calls, begets more short gamma. Um, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The thing is, this doesn't go on forever, as we've yeah. already seen in several other parts of the market, as these things, same things have already played out in the last several years. Um, so, um, you know, be careful shorting it, but also understand that uh, when it ends, it's going to end violently mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, it will be it will be painful. Yeah, it's, that's exactly as you describe that. I'm thinking to myself, and I think we're all thinking this can never end well. <laughs> like there's that much, that much pressure. So what's yeah, we're the, at 35 what's the times, what right? 35 times revenue, right? Um, I mean, listen, anything can it can keep going up as long as liquidity is there, and that's the point. Um, but it is not, uh, you know, if if we get to a point where the liquidity in the market is truly going out, right? The tide's going out. Um, there is a point where the put matters. And, you know, at those, those valuations, uh, there is no put within 90% of that valuation. So what are you looking at in terms of liquidity then? If that's if that's the key, and, and for those of you who are on the platform, you're going to see a thread here because this is what Raoul's been talking about. I think we're going to tackle it on Friday. Michael Howell's been on it. This is what folks who are looking at the markets are really really underscoring right now. So what are you looking at in terms of liquidity, Jim? Um, well, I mean, look, the reality is uh, we talked about breadth, but just to give you some stats, you know, we're at uh, only 29, you know, 
outperforming stocks uh, are down to only 29% of the market. That's the lowest since 1999. That's a pretty big uh, year to, to keep in mind, right? People talk about how crazy valuations were there um, on a, uh, you know, on a uh, discount rate relative to interest rates were more expensive than the recent peak uh, by significant margin. And that's all kind of fundamental, but on a, from a liquidity perspective, um, we've also increased interest rates from zero to five, right? And that the lag of that is about 18 months. And guess mm. where we are, right? About 18 months. And I think that's, uh, you can reference a lot of different people in terms of how those those lags work. And I think we've referenced this before here, but but it's really, it, it, it's, you know, there's a $450 trillion global asset market and, uh, you know, about four, 380 trillion, sorry, of that 450 trillion uh, is uh, in lagging assets, real estate, private equity, venture capital, right? Um, a lot of, uh, you know, loans that that really take a while, right, to catch up. And even the mark equity market itself is a lagging in terms of supply and demand because of buybacks, which themselves operate on a uh, at least a one year, if not more. Uh, we had almost record buybacks in the first quarter. Uh, that's after an increase of 5% in, in the year prior. That's not because interest rates haven't hit the market, you know, or aren't important. It's just because there's a lag in terms of the approval of buybacks and, and how they enter the market. Um, so that's happening. And uh, right as, right, uh, we're the, the shorter acting liquidity pieces, which is kind of the Fed's balance sheet, the QE, QT part, has really not worked through the pipeline. And again, you can look at a lot of different liquidity models. People have been like, where's the QT? We've been talking about QT for a year and a half. What happened? Um, and that's been counterbalanced by uh, factors um, like the you know, draining of the Treasury General account, right? Um, it's a, a really big one. Um, you know, by, by most estimations, we're going to, by the end of the year, at once this, um, this, uh, the, deal, the debt ceiling gets passed, uh, we're going to have to issue $1.4 trillion in, in debt before the end of the year. Um, that is a massive sucking sound out of um, asset markets, right? Uh, that, that money's got to go, you know, there's got to be buyers of that debt, um, which means that money's got to come from somewhere. Um, and if that means interest rates go higher, right, uh, as that demand, you know, that, that supply comes on the market and demand has to be met, uh, that means equity markets or somewhere else, some other risk asset has to, you know, has to reduce liquidity. So, and that's a real-time effect, to be clear. That's supply and demand straight into, you know, the veins of the market, um, as opposed to interest rates, which is through the economy, much slower acting. And so you're going to get this very quick acting kind of reduction in liquidity right as kind of the lag on kind of the other things are, uh, is coming down the pipe at the same time. And so that's, that's a, a pretty kind of bitches brew of of uh, kind of uh, kind of, of 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 you know liquidity issues all at once. Um, I would pair with that liquidity issue, you know, the fact that the last year and a half there's been a lot of short speculation, a lot of vol buying, and that led to a reduce reduction in volatility, reduction in and downside, um, and realized vol as we've talked about in the last year and a half. But a lot of that has also dramatically changed because it didn't work. And a year and a half is a long time to be investing in vol on the long side and and uh, eating decay. And on the other side, it's a it's a wonderful time, right, uh, to be speculating short. And a lot of people have been, you know, getting calls all the time now, like, hey, uh, I've been 30, 40%, you know, the last year and a half just shorting these kind of puts. Uh, why wouldn't I just keep doing that? Like, but, you know, 
So it's, it's back. This is a cycle we go through. I could go through the history uh, since 2015 of the sine curve of vol supply and people crowd into shorting it, crowd into being long it. And um, it's uh, it's dealer positioning at its core and how how these things move when things are working, you know, greed, uh, pot, you know, is, is you know, unavoidable. Uh, it's a it's a, a feature of the system, not a bug. Um, and uh, and so is fear. Right. And, uh, you know, I think we go from vacillate from one to another structurally because we have to as money managers, as uh, you know, as entities trying to seek up you know, highest returns. Um, and so that that where are we on that curve? And, and, and I'll quite frankly say that, you know, uh, we, we reduced 30 day vol hedging by 40, 50 percent as we move to zero DT that, you know, nobody's talking about how much real Vega hedging has reduced. Everybody's talking about the increase in zero DT. Why? Because uh, realized vol was working and implied wasn't, right? Uh, but then what happened? All the buyers uh, of originally buyers of zero DT have now turned sellers of zero DT because guess what? That wasn't working either because everybody crowded in there, which compressed realized vol. So now you have a broad phenomenon where it's broadly sellers across the board. That's making dealers long, right? Which is forcing this kind of pinning. But what it is, uh, more and more creating is an unbalanced system where, where institutions are not hedged. Um, yes, dealers are hedging, but as soon as you break out of the general range, you can get to a really unbalanced uh, you know, uh, position in the market. So we're in a fundamental liquidity situation, which is dramatically deteriorating, um, while at the same time, uh, the actual flows uh, you know, are, are, are pinning the market and in the short term, but are structurally more and more unstable and more and more unhedged. So kind of, again, a, 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 a particularly dangerous point in markets. It certainly sounds like that. I mean, it sounds like you're really kind of setting up for uh, the perfect conditions for a major event. Yeah. I mean, the reality is uh, the more people know about this, I'm not the only one talking about these circumstances, right? Um, the harder it is for it to transpire, but it doesn't mean it won't transpire. It just will transpire broadly, and this is what always happens in a in a in a feat, as a function of time and price that makes it very difficult to short it, and um, that's broadly what we're looking for. It's kind of what a topping process kind of looks like. Generally, you get a short squeeze, some overextension that is fairly violent or that unpins vol, um, or just a simple function of uh, you know enough time where uh, more and more ball speculation, more and more um, uh, tail kind of uh, unhedging kind of happens where uh, eventually, um, you know, you get a kind of 2018 type um, kind of forcing of over leverage in a system. And, and what the, the trajectory on is, is, is a, some function of time and price. You know, we're looking for the stretching of a rubber band, ideally. Um, the more we get that, the more uh, the opportunity is there. We would have liked to have seen a bit more you know, squeezing of those shorts into this uh, period. Mm. Um, you know, that you know, what's happening in NVIDIA is, is definitely welcome. So that's definitely creating an imbalance um, and, and getting more and more people off sides and, and corners of the market. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, generally this topping process necessitates a, a kind of uh, a, some type of path, right, that will, uh, that will squeeze shorts, make it harder uh, for, for long vol, entities to be to be long but uh but the fundamental flows and, and the underlying flows are definitely heading 
uh, quickly in that direction. And so it's just a matter of, uh, in our opinion, when and how. Um, uh, it's going to take conviction. It always does. If it was easy, uh, you know, uh, you know, it would it would be everybody would be shorting this all the time. But whether it's 2007, uh, you know, 2000, or even more recently, uh, Feb March 2020, um, it it generally is very counterintuitive before it's intuitive, and mm. and that is uh, a function of squeezing shorts and changing narrative and really um, you know shaking weak hands. Yeah, and I think that's what's necessary here in this final final stage. Final stage. Um, so I want to I want to throw something else out as you describe this. So I mentioned that um, Rao has been really focused on liquidity. So Rao sat down with Jeff Snyder. I'm going to play another. It's an important conversation. We played a clip yesterday about inflation. I'm going to play another one for everyone today, talking about the sort of uh, the, the 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 sort of mismatch that they think that there is in the market that just that this the market's telling them at least that something's not right let's have a listen to it now euro dollar markets are pricing in what a cut by july isn't it well there's always probabilities and i think the market right now is saying that we don't know about july uh, we don't know about june june june's kind of up in the air july you go back a couple weeks the market was saying that there was a maybe 50-50 chance of a rate cut by July. That's kind of gone away now because of you know ebbs and flows. What the market is saying is that September. By the time we get to September, rates are gonna be lower the short end as well as the long end. So that's really, something happens this summer when we get to September, which only makes sense because you look at every crisis period or near every crisis period, it's always September. The middle of September, like the middle of March, that's a seasonal point, which we always go through these things. So if you're thinking ahead, there's probably a really good chance that something happens in September, if not beforehand. So that full interview is on our website. If you're not a member, scan the QR code and join our community. Um, so Jim, we, you know, it's interesting. We still have officials like even today, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester saying there's no compelling reason to pause U.S. rate hikes. And yet, as Jeff points out, they're looking at the global markets and the global markets are pricing in rate cuts. And so they're, both sides can't be right. How are you thinking about this? Yeah. Um, so uh, a general risk off positioning has partially is partially what's responsible for the cap and rates, right? Uh, people have been flooding into the bond market. Um, and uh, but the re fundamental realities of inflation have not changed. And I think that's the important disconnect, right? Um, you know, labor, the labor market's the strongest it's been at 3.4%, right? Um, you know, uh, we're seeing historic onshoring, deglobalization. Uh, we're refilling reserves uh, and the SPR, right? As OPEC's kind of underpinning uh, oil prices, dollar, the dollar has been relatively weak. Um, you know, long-term rates are down the back, which is also itself reflexively stimulative. Like all of these things, not to mention, you know, markets have been hanging in really well in terms of a wealth effect. Um, all of these things are structurally, you know, inflationary. Um, in the context of, you know, the Fed was much more activist uh, and, and, uh, and hawkish right three months ago before all these things happened. Um, the difference is we had a little bank run in between, um, and that's it. Uh, so structurally, nothing has changed. And, and by all accounts, that's, you know, I guess we can argue whether it's going to be over or not, and if we're going to 
for so shorts, but that is a tail in the market. That is not core to the central realities of inflation. So yes, the, the market is completely out of step with the bond market, but I think that's more of a function of supply and demand, broad macro flows, and, um, and the Fed is going to, uh, not just the Fed, the Treasury as well, as we talked about with the TGA, is going to force those rates higher. It's going to come to balance uh, that. We've already seen it. I talked about this about a month ago on, on a, I think, here, but also on a couple other platforms, how you know the, the market was dramatically underestimating the realities of June. Uh, at the yeah, time, we did talk was, about that. Yeah, yeah, at the time, it was a 0%. Guess what? Now it's more than, you know, 50%, right? Um, and the reality is it's, is that is is likely um, to continue to go that way. I think the Fed is is going to have to continue to push against that. And again, not just the Fed, but importantly, the Treasury on a short term, much more kind of, again, right into the veins, as we talked about, uh, you know, uh, reality is, is likely to have to force those higher just in terms of issuance. Um, again, just to put some numbers out there, $1.4 trillion in issuance before the end of 2003. By some accounts, a trillion of that will have to happen by the end of August. I mean, um, how does, you know, this is in a world where uh, the daily net liquidity, which sounds crazy, by the way, to some people, but the daily net liquidity that drives market direction is 50 to 75, this is for equity markets, 50 to 75 billion right uh per day so a trillion dollars is a tremendous thing to to um, work against and again that that should have reflexive effects on the market in in, in short order um, as soon as this you know ironically this debt ceiling is is a is a kind of a sell the news event in that regard um and so something we need to be very very thoughtful of i do think uh there is a disconnect now uh because liquidity matters in the short term but as soon as this reverses i would I would expect the the bond market to kind of um, meet the equity market where it is, and then the equity market itself to kind of reflexively respond to that liquidity as well. So you don't think the Fed's going to be cutting? You think that bet is wrong in the bond market? It is. Uh, it is wrong. Yes. Um, I, they, they, the only way they will is if the equity market has a dramatic decline. And uh, can we get that dramatic decline? Absolutely. So one of the two, you know, the two are going to converge, and my guess is that the bond market will force uh, an increase in interest rates right as the equity market will also have to decline somewhat to kind of meet meet somewhere in the middle um but and that uh, bond market those yields are going higher not because of because people will listen to what you described before where you have the lag effect hitting all those assets you know that 18 month lag effect and then you've got this liquidity and it that's that sounds like it's bad news for the stock market but bad news for the economy um, so then you would think that would take the pressure off the Fed, but you're saying that bond yields are not necessarily going to be looking at that. They've got to attract buyers. It's an issuance issue. Correct. Everybody's still playing the last 40 years cyclical game, right? The whole game was uh, very clear to the uh, to the average uh, watcher. It was the Fed was in control of a system. Uh, we had not had inflation for 40 years. Uh, it was de structurally deflationary environment. And anytime uh, they we got a cyclically deflation, all the Fed had to do was come in and you know cut rates and and stimulate uh, you know liquidity, and we would simply push back up. Um, that's all fine and well. Why can't the Fed continue to do that? Well, they have a dual mandate: price stability and maximum employment. When we're in a deflationary environment, they can cyclically stimulate all day long and push against that deflationary um, pressure. 
but uh, that has changed, um, and we can we can do another three hours on why that is. I've, yeah. I've, I've talked about that uh, ad nauseum. Um, uh, but the, but the reality is there's structurally inflationary pressures uh, that we've seen again historically in other environments uh, for the same reasons. At the end of the day, it's about balancing inequality and populism. Um, but there's other you know generational uh, factors which tie it to this this moment. Um, but the reality is that we are in a structurally deflationary environment until uh, we decide as a people, not just as a government, but as a people to not make those things a priority, um, then uh, you know, those structural inflationary forces will continue. Um, and that puts the Fed in a box. That means the Fed has lost uh, control. We are no longer in a two-dimensional system where the Fed can just come simply pressure against the, the, you know, the decline in, in employment um, and balance deflation. But now, uh, if they come back into the fray and stimulate cyclically, they will exacerbate, much like they did in the early 70s, um, structural in, uh, in inflation. And that structural inflation could be much worse than we've seen so far and likely will be if they do that. And that is what it's stagflation is all about. And something that Nobody's experienced for 40 years, and, and all the algos that are looking at 40 years of history also have an experience. Um, it, is, it is an added uh, dimensionality uh, to, the, to the system and is much more dangerous um, uh, you know, as well, not just for equity markets, but broadly um, for liquidity across the market um, when, when the Fed loses control. And, and one of the things I, I love about the way you're describing this, Gem, is that it is, um, it is multidimensional. Like we can see this. There are all these forces at work, sometimes together, sometimes counterbalancing. And I and I think that you really laid it out in a way that helps us understand that. By the way, Christopher is saying very impressive whiteboard behind you. <laughs> so we know we're, they're very observant, our crew. Um, so I, I we have some great questions. I'm gonna try to squeeze a couple in, but I just wanted to ask you since we're on this. So, I, and I know you just came from a conference. I know people are talking about a liquidity event. Uh, they are, but but most of them are focused on the short term around the uh, the general account. You're also describing these longer lag effects coming in. Um, people are talking about vol events. When do you see this this liquidity event continuing through the second half of the year? Is this a is this a more temporary situation? And then we're going to see liquidity. I think that people who think that. Think it's going to come from the Fed and QE or lower rates, but if you don't think that, if you think that that's wrong, then do you see this this lack of liquidity continuing into the second half? So let's let's go back to uh, end of December, 2019. Um, I was on the phone regularly with my ins biggest institutional client at the time um, about COVID. This is the end of December, 2019. Um, it was a known entity. Uh, it took a rally throughout end of December, early January, midway through February, right, um, for a 30% decline in markets to begin. Mm. Um, the, reality, the realities of COVID were always there. The fundamental uh, liquidity concerns um, were always there. Um, I think in a, that's a microcosm of just how markets work. People knew about it. They were trying to short the market. They were trying to buy hedges. And broadly, it took a situation where the liquidity was poor for there to be a crack, right, um, there for, for things to break. Um, and that, that crack was S&P March quarterly uh, structured products and hedges were much more short 
uh, for dealers there than they were in February and January. And that's why they, the decline started the day after February options expiration and ended the day after March OPEX, right? It's not a coincidence. Um, it's why, uh, you know, correlation went to actually 1.1, right? And the, and the center of the S&P itself was actually the worst hit vault because that was the vault center where the, where the problems were the biggest. But the liquidity had to get to a point where they, the market could break it. It had to shake the weak hands. And that can happen as a function of price. So that's why we get a lot of blow off tops. That's why it often is kind of a, a fast move that ends it. Or it can happen just as a function of building uh, pressure uh, in terms of short vol or other uh, structured risk in the market. And that's generally a function of time. And that's what I've talked about before. But um, the, the path to, to this decline, which is a structural problem, right, is um, a shaking of liquidity. And, and, and if you're asking me to time that exactly, um, it's hard. Mm. But in the back half of the year, it should happen. Uh, I would say that the, the more counter-trend liquidity, you know, the, the more of a squeeze we get, the sooner it will happen. Um, so uh, it's kind of like stretching a rubber band. Um, we would have liked to have seen that already, but uh, also the more talking heads like me come on and educate people about this, the also reflexively, the longer it can take. And that's why yeah. markets often, um, you know, can stay irrational longer than people can stay solvent. I think that's an important point. Yeah, it's always worth remembering that. And this is invisible to a lot of people who are watching the markets. And that's what's so dangerous and worries us a lot of the time, you know, that that people are not aware of these other dynamics. They see it through a different lens. Um, and that and that can be really dangerous when it comes to protecting your money. One quick question we're going to squeeze in. Um, do you have an opinion on how the Fed and Treasury will react to the lack of liquidity? Is this something they're going to take into consideration? They will when they have to. Uh, I do not do not think they will be proactive about it, um, partially because I actually think the Fed wants uh, a little ear out of this market. They've been trying to write calls. They've been trying to talk, uh, you know, rates higher in the long end of the curve. They've been trying to, you know, remove the wealth effect so they can, you know, stop raising rates ultimately themselves. Um, so. Ironically, you know, don't fight the Fed, right? We've the markets have been fighting the Fed, as you alluded to, as we're all, you know, and, and Snyder were talking about, right? Mm -hmm. um, they want things to be more in line, and so, you know, how how does that happen? Well, they they let this thing breathe a little bit, and they let rates go higher as as you know, supply of Treasuries comes on the market. Uh, and then uh, a question about thoughts on June opex. So the, these big OPEXs matter. Um, uh, it's not a coincidence that um, mid-August into mid-September is often a scary time. It's not a coincidence that mid-February into to mid-March, mid as we saw with uh, the COVID crash, is often a scary time. Um, uh, June, uh, there's a reason May, sell in May and go away, exists. Again, June sits right there. December is a little bit of a different animal because it's end of the year. Uh, it's a lot, the most holidays of the year. There's several other dynamics that counteract some of that risk there. But these other three quarterly OPEX are very important to timing. Um, it doesn't mean a crash necessarily happens there, but what that means is you have a fatter tail in those windows. And so 
Now, the, the reality is if expected return is the same and you have a fatter tail, that means this distribution needs to be a little bit more right distributed. And that also tends to be the case. And this is the dynamic of, vol, of buyback, this Vana and Charm effect I talk about. As a tail that's fat decays, right, the hedgers, the dealers who are short those puts, uh, that are short that gamma, ultimately have to buy back that stock. And that creates a linear buyback that can reduce volatility, create a, a positive force, um, but that doesn't mean the fat tail doesn't exist. And I think thinking about this more distributionally is very important. Everybody wants to know up, down, are we going up, are we going down? When are we going down, when are we going up? The reality is you need to be uh, very much more cognizant of, of what the potential risk and distribution of potential returns looks like in given windows and trade according to that. Um, you can do that with options more broadly, but also uh, manage risk accordingly, um, you know, with stops and other types of, of, of uh, trades. Well, we just got a masterclass in some of this from you, Jim, and it's so important to have this conversation as we head into these, what sounds like it's going to be pretty turbulent water. So we, we appreciate you making it um, or talking about it in a way that the rest of us can understand. It's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for the great questions, everyone. Um, you know, if you thought you were going to be able to think to, to, you know, just sort of put your stuff in and take a few months off, it sounds like you're not. So we're going to all have to be very vigilant and we'll have Jen back on again to help us do that. Thanks to all of you. Thanks for the great questions. As always, take care and good luck out there. This episode of the Real Vision Daily Briefing was sponsored by Calshi. Calshi allows investors a chance to profit from being right about the outcome of events. Sign up at calshi.com slash realvision now to claim $15 towards your first event contract today.